Genesis chapter 26. Here in the 26th chapter of Genesis, we have essentially the only chapter in the Bible that is only about Isaac. From the very beginning of Isaac's, uh, that is talked about Isaac on the pages of the Bible, we've had promises of Isaac's birth to Abraham and Sarah. In chapter 21, we saw his miraculous birth uh, to Abraham at 100 and Sarah at age 90. In chapter 22, we saw the near sacrifice of Isaac. But even then, it was Abraham and his faith that were in focus. In 24, there's this wife being found for Isaac. But there, it's the, the servant and his faith and Abraham's faithfulness to send him to his homeland to find a wife for Isaac. And in chapter 25, it's really about the birth of Esau and Jacob to Isaac and Rebekah more than Isaac himself. By the time we get to chapter 27, Isaac will already be an old man, thinking that he's about to die, passing the blessing on to his children. And in chapter 35, he's 180 years old, passing away. But here in 26, Genesis chapter 26, we have this one chapter that is about the life of Isaac, and it's a chapter that's packed with several different events that are selected from the 180 years of Isaac to show us, first on the one hand, that Isaac is just a chip off the old block, that he is just like his father. The events of chapter 26 have parallels in the life of Abraham. Isaac fails where Abraham fails and succeeds where Abraham succeeds. His life is going to follow the same basic pattern of the patriarch Abraham. But a second thing that we see, and even more importantly, is that the God of Abraham is the God of Isaac. And he blesses Isaac in spite of his failures or his obediences because of his covenant faithfulness. If you have found your way to Genesis chapter 26, I would invite you to stand with me as we read God's word together. Beginning in verse 1, the word of God says, There was another famine in the land, in addition to the one that had occurred in Abraham's time. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, at Gerar. The Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land that I tell you about. Stay in this land as an alien, and I will be with you and bless you. For I will give you all these lands to you and your offspring, and I will confirm the oath that I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky. I will give your offspring all these lands, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring, because Abraham listened to me and kept my mandates, my commands, my statutes, and my instructions." So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked about his wife, he said, She is my sister. For he was afraid to say, My wife, thinking the men of the place will kill me on account of Rebekah, for she is a beautiful woman. When Isaac had been there for some time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from the window and was surprised to see Isaac caressing his wife Rebekah. Abimelech sent for Isaac and said, So she is really your wife. How could you say she is my sister? And Isaac answered him, because I thought I might die on account of her. Then Abimelech said, what is this you've done to us? One of the people could easily have slept with your wife, and you would have brought guilt on us. So Abimelech warned all the people, whoever harms this man or his wife will certainly be put to death. And Isaac sowed seed in that land, and in that year he reaped a hundred times what was sown. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and kept getting richer until he was very wealthy. He had flocks of sheep, herds of cattle, and many slaves, and the Philistines were envious of him. The Philistines stopped up the wells that his, father, that his father's servants had dug in the days of his father Abraham, filling them with dirt. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Leave us, for you are much too powerful for us. So Isaac left there and camped in Gerar, in the Gerar Valley, and lived there. Isaac reopened the wells that had been dug in the days of his father Abraham, and that the Philistines had stopped up after Abraham died. He gave them the same names his father had given them. And then Isaac's servants dug, the dug in the valley and found a well of sp spring water there. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen and said, The water is ours. So he named the well Essek because they argued with him. Then they dug another well and quarreled over that one also. So he named it Sitna 
He moved from there and dug another, and they did not quarrel over it. He named it Rehoboth and said, For now the Lord has made space for us, and we will be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him that night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your offspring because of my servant Abraham. So he built an altar there, called on the name of the Lord, and pitched his tent there. Isaac's servants also dug a well there. Now Abimelech came to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army. And Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me? You hated me and sent me away from you. And they replied, We have clearly seen how the Lord has been with you. We think there should be an oath between two parties, between us and you. Let us make a covenant with you. You will not harm us, just as we have not harmed you, but have done only what was good to you, sending you away in peace. You are now blessed by the Lord. So he prepared a banquet for them, and they ate and drank. They got up early in the morning and swore an oath to each other. And Isaac sent them on their way, and they left him in peace. And on that same day, Isaac's servants came to tell him about the well they had dug, saying to him, We have found water. And he called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is still Beersheba today. When Isaac was, excuse me, when Esau was 40 years old, he took as his wives Judith, daughter of Beri, the Hittite, and Basimoth, daughter of Elon, the, Hitt, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. May God be praised through the reading and preaching of his word. You may be seated. Well, no doubt John Wesley is an important figure in church history. Certainly we would agree with some of John Wesley's theology, but he no doubt left an incredible impact on the world that he lived in and the church that he was a part of. Wesley is known for organizing what will become the Methodist denomination, but he is more well-known or ought to be more well-known for his relentless pursuit of holiness and sanctification. It was Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, who recognized that while there was much to be cautious about in the theology of John Wesley and his brother Charles, he was nonetheless willing to acknowledge their incredible desire for holiness. And he spoke a word of caution to those so eager to find fault with the Wesleys. He says, quote, It will be time for us to find fault with John and Charles Wesley, not when we discover their mistakes, but when we have cured our own. When we shall have more piety than they, more fire, more grace, more burning love, more intense unselfishness, then, and not till then, may we begin to find fault and criticize. The Wesleys pursued holiness relentlessly. And another author summarizes John Wesley's ministry saying, Wesley was a preacher, a pastor, a leader, an administrator, and an architect of religious organization. He rode 250,000 miles on horseback, gave away 30,000 pounds, an amount that could have kept a gentleman for a decade, and preached more than 40,000 sermons. He was a man of rare ability, passion, commitment, and unique energy. You see, John Wesley pursued holiness and traveled far and wide to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And at the end of John Wesley's life, with his family and friends gathered around him as he lay on his deathbed, gasping to breathe and even struggling to speak and be understood by those around him, of all the things that John Wesley could have said, from the countless times that he read the scriptures and from the 40,000 sermons that he preached, of the innumerable times that he offered hope and encouragement or instruction to those that were with him, the final words of John Wesley were, Best of all, God is with us. Best of all, God is with us. In John Wesley's last moments, he could have said anything that he wanted, but he felt it most important to remind those around him of the presence of God, which is the great claim of Christianity, dear brothers and sisters, that God is with us, that God has come in the flesh in Jesus Christ, and that even in the ascension of uh, the Son back to the Father, through His Spirit, God is with us. 
And the lesson that John Wesley passed on and the lesson of Christianity is the same lesson that we learn here in Genesis 26 as we review the trials of faith that Isaac encounters. The recurring theme is that God was with him. In verses 2 and 3, we read of God telling him, I will be with you and bless you. In verse 24, he says, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid for I am with you. And even Abimelech, the pagan, comments on the life of Isaac and says, clearly we have seen the Lord has been with you. And this is the lesson that you and I have to learn this morning, brothers and sisters, is that God is always with us. And it's not that you and I, every believer in this room, wouldn't affirm that theologically, that we wouldn't say that that is true indeed. But even Isaac would have affirmed that truth with his lips after hearing it from the Lord the first time. And yet for Isaac and for us, how we relate to that truth and how we appropriate that truth in our hearts and lives, that God is with us, will affect everything about how we live especially, particularly in times of difficulty. And so as we think about this passage, God is with us because of his covenant faithfulness. He was with Abraham. He was with Isaac. And for all who are in true fellowship with him through Christ, God is with us. And so we know this. We feel this deeply when things are going well for us. But what about those times of difficulty? What about when we're struggling? You see, it is then when we think that the Lord has forgotten us or abandoned us, but it is then that we must remember this truth from Genesis 26 that God is with us. Because of His covenant faithfulness, God is with us even in our times of difficulty. And if you're following along and taking notes this morning, there are three ways, three specific times from the life of Isaac that also show up in our lives that we can see that God is indeed with us in our times of difficulty. First, I want us to see that God is with us in our times of need. You see, there's a famine that comes in the land in Genesis chapter 26. There's a famine in the land. Now we've heard this language before in Genesis. Back in Genesis chapter 12 verse 10 we read there was a famine in the land so Abram went down to Egypt to stay there for a while because the famine in the land was severe. Not only that we read that it was in addition to the time of the one in Abraham's day. This is a famine just like that one but certainly not the same one. But what the author of Genesis is doing is calling our attention back to what happened in Abraham's life. Remember there are parallels in this chapter to everything that happened in Abraham's life. We're meant to remember that earlier famine and we're meant to remember how Abraham responded. He went down to Egypt. He went away from the Lord's presence. He went to seek by his own hand and by his own strength, through his own wisdom, the blessings that only God could provide. And it was there that he failed to trust God by going down to Egypt, and he failed to trust God by telling Pharaoh that Sarah was his sister and not his wife. Again, we see here another clue that Isaac's life parallels that of his father. And so Isaac experiences a famine just like his father. He's faced with the same temptation to leave the promised land, to go down to Egypt, and to gain the blessings of God by his own means, just as his father did before him. And as we read this the first time, the question is rolling in our minds, what is Isaac going to do? Is he going to act like Abraham? Is he going to act faithless? Or is he going to be faithful well we see sadly Isaac begins exhibiting the same faithlessness of his father Isaac is on the way to Egypt he gets to the border country the border region of Gerar where Abimelech reigns this is uh, no doubt this is uh, his plan is to go down to Egypt and he encounters Abimelech there in Gerar now, just a note, this is probably not the same Abimelech that Abraham had dealings with back in Genesis chapter 20. It could be. There's about 80 years that is spanned, and so depending on the ages of Abraham, Isaac, and Abimelech, it could be the same person. But more than likely, this is either a title 
or a noble name, a dynasty name that is passed on generation to generation. This is probably Abimelech Jr., if you will. But nonetheless, Isaac is headed for Egypt, but the Lord intervenes. He commands him, do not go down to Egypt. And Egypt is so bad because it represents the world. It represents self-trust. It represents taking matters into his own hand. This cannot be the place of God's blessing. If Isaac is to be blessed, he must remain in the land of promise. And so the Lord sovereignly prevents him from committing the same sin that his father did before him. And there he reminds him, confirms to him the covenant blessings that he gave to his son, to, to, excuse me, to Abraham. He reminds him that he will be an alien and a sojourner, a stranger in the land of Canaan, but that to leave this land would be to leave the place of God's blessings. And he says to him in verse 7, I'll confirm my covenant that's between me and your future offspring throughout their generations. It is a permanent covenant to be your God and the God of your offspring. And to you and your future offspring, I will give the land where you are residing. It, all the land of Canaan as a permanent possession and I will be their God. There's this covenant confirmation of God's place. There is a land for them to inherit that they will be God's people, and most of all, they will have God's blessing. There will be a people as numerous as the, as the stars of the sky, and they, through them, will come a blessing for the nations. And so Isaac remains in the land. He remains faithful to the Lord. Now, no doubt, by the world standards, Isaac made a foolish decision. Isaac, there's a famine in the land. Why don't you go down to Egypt? Why don't you go down to the Nile River? There's water aplenty. There's food aplenty there in Egypt. By the world standards, Isaac made a foolish decision. But he made his decision not with his natural eyes and mind, but with eyes and heart of faith. The Lord brought this famine into Isaac's life and supernaturally sustains him through it to remind him that God is with him and that God is covenantally faithful. And so this is a reminder to you and I, dear brothers and sisters, that God can and will bring these sorts of famines into our lives. He will bring these sorts of needs into our life to remind us ultimately of our need for Him. God will bring suffering into our lives to drive us in dependence upon Him. The life of faith, dear Christian, often means sojourning in a land of difficulty when there are the well-watered plains of Egypt all around us. But we continue in faithfulness knowing that God is with us in our times of need. God is faithful. And so we remember that God is with us. Had Isaac ended up in Egypt, he would have said, what a smart decision I've made. Look how I've protected my family from need. And yet they would have been leaving the very presence and blessings of God. This passage reminds us that God is indeed with us in our times of need. This goes for our very basic provisions and necessities of life. There are countless scriptures reminding us that God indeed provides our every need. Psalm 37 says, I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous abandoned or his children begging for bread. And Psalm 34 says, you who are his holy ones, fear the Lord. For those who fear him lack nothing. Young lions lack food and go hungry, but those who seek the Lord will not lack any good thing. Christians are able to depend on and rest in the Lord to provide all their physical needs. We see a perfect example of this in the Apostle Paul as he writes to the church at Philippi. In the letter to the Philippians, Paul writes about his time in prison, and he is no doubt suffering. He is no doubt being mistreated. He is no doubt in need. And yet he is able to write to the Philippians that whether he has abundance or whether he has lack, whether he is hungry or whether he is well fed, he knows how to be content because Christ is strengthening him through it. And then he tells the Philippians, based on his own personal experience, I know 
my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Oh, the world will tempt us to forsake our faith and to lean into our own understanding. They'll tell us that it won't work out if we wait upon and depend upon the Lord. But God says he is faithful and God says he is with us. But this is also true of our spiritual needs, not merely our natural needs, but our spiritual needs as well. How true is it that God provides for us peace and comfort, joy and contentment, wisdom and strength, grace and forgiveness of sins? The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8, He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. How will He not also with Him grant us everything? If the Lord has granted to us all that heaven has to give in the person of Christ, how much more will He give us everything that we, he need, that we need? If He has given us Christ for our salvation, will He not give us the lesser graces and the lesser blessings from His abundance? If we belong to Christ, God is with us in our time of need. That's why the author of Hebrews tells us to approach the throne of grace boldly seeking grace to help in our times of need. But this isn't just true individually. This is true as a church as well, isn't it? That God is with us in our time of needs. I'm reminded of the end of the Gospel of Matthew chapter 28. In Matthew 28, after Jesus has ascended from, excuse me, He's been raised from the dead and He's about to ascend back to His Father, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, he says, and teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. We, as the people of God, as we march forth, we are a needy people dependent upon His grace. We need His sustaining grace to keep us persevering in the work of ministry that He has entrusted to us. But we are also dependent upon His grace by His Spirit to provide conversions, results, fruit of the work that we are doing. In our work of the Gospel, Jesus says, remember I am with you. In your moment of need, dear church, Christ is with us. And so we see first in this text that God is with His people and God is with His church. God indeed is with us in our times of need. But Isaac's dwelling in Gerar gave occasion for another time of difficulty. And so the second thing that I want us to see this morning is that God is with us in our times of fear. You see, it's incredible that we can fall into sin almost immediately after receiving God's blessings and promises through His words. And yet, we often do. And that's exactly what Isaac does here in Genesis 26. By God's grace, Isaac succeeded where Abraham had failed. He did not go down to Egypt. But immediately after this, while he's in Gerar, he falls into the same temptation and the same failure that his father Abraham had twice before. You see, Rebekah was a beautiful woman and Isaac found himself worrying whether the men of Gerar might kill him so that they could take her for him for themselves and so we see this parallel event in the life of Abraham back in Genesis 12 Abraham goes down to Egypt and he tells the men of Egypt this isn't my wife this is my sister and God brings cursings upon the house of Pharaoh and in Genesis chapter 20, we read that Abraham went to Gerar in the land of King Abimelech. And there he tells them, Sarah is not my wife, she's my sister, in hopes that he would preserve his own life. Isaac does the same thing when he goes to Gerar. He tells the men of the country that this is my sister, not my wife. In spite of, but in spite of his fear, God protects Rebekah and Isaac just as he protected Sarah and Abraham. One day, Abimelech is looking out his window and he sees Isaac and Rebekah. The ESV says laughing. The CSB translates a little further and says caressing. What's happening here is a playful, flirtatious laughter. It was accompanied by googly eyes. And so it was the kind of laughter that would only be appropriate between a husband and a wife. And Abimelech realizes there's no way this is his sister. This is his wife. So Abimelech confronts Isaac for his 
deceit after seeing this flirtatious laughter between them. And he rebukes them for potentially bringing guilt down upon them. And so Abimelech puts out a warning about Isaac and Rebekah that if anyone should harm him, that they would be surely put to death. But this isn't just Abimelech acting. This is God working through Abimelech, working through the heart of this pagan king to protect his covenant people. No doubt Isaac deserves this rebuke. No doubt Isaac sinned in his lack of trust in God. But this is an act of God's providence over his covenant people to bless. And God indeed blesses. In the next few verses, we read that God blesses him greatly. Even in the middle of a famine, Isaac sows seed and it brings forth blessing a hundredfold. The Lord was with him in spite of his sin. Again, this is parallel to the life of Abraham. When Abraham went down to Egypt, lied to Pharaoh, and then Pharaoh sends them back, we read that Abraham, from his time in Egypt, acquired flocks and herds, male and female donkeys, male and female slaves, and camels. And so Isaac lied about his relationship with his wife for the same reason that Abraham did. He was afraid. He lied because of fear. And dear church, I want to linger there on that idea of fear where, where Isaac says that he was afraid for his own life. We want to think about the reasons that you and I feel afraid, the reasons that we feel fear, and whether or not it's a good fear, an appropriate fear, or whether or not it's a sinful fear. Because all too often in our lives, the fear that we, fi- that we feel is a sinful fear. One kind of sinful fear is fear of man. It's the kind of fear of man that fears what man is able to do to us or will do to us or think or say about us. And yet the Bible is full of warnings against the fear of man. In one place, the Lord Jesus says, Do not fear those who are able to kill the body, but fear, those, fear him who is able to cast both soul and body into hell. There is a right fear of God that is not appropriate to fear of man. The author of Proverbs says the fear of mankind is a snare, but the one who trusts in the Lord is protected. Here, Proverbs teaches us that fear of man is like a snare. It's like a trap that's end is destruction to catch us and hold us in it and then destroy us. Fear of man is a danger to our souls. That's why the Bible warns us, cautions us against fear of man. Fear of man is a sinful fear. A second kind of fear that is sinful is any fear that hinders us from fulfilling our God-given responsibilities. Any fear that would keep us from doing what God has charged us to do is a sinful fear. You can think of the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25. The rich master gives talents to all of his servants. One receives five, one receives two, and one receives one. And the two that receive the greater portion, they go and put his master's talents to work and re- receive a return on investment so that the, when the master returns, he's pleased with what they have done. But the one servant who received just one talent, he says because he was afraid, he hid the talent and gives the one talent back to his master. His fear kept him from doing what he was obligated to do. His fear kept him from performing his responsibilities. And so, dear church, any fear that prevents us from doing what God has commanded us to do is a sinful fear. Oftentimes you will hear of being afraid of sharing the gospel. This is a sinful fear. Or we're afraid to speak the truth in love in order to, to rebuke someone who is in sin. Any fear that hinders us from fulfilling that which God has commanded us to do is sinful fear. There's a third kind of sinful fear. And it's any kind of fear that produces a distrust in the Lord and produces worry, anxiety, or panic. Dear church, that is a sinful fear. Didn't the Lord Jesus say in Matthew chapter 6, Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. Don't they sow or reap or they, excuse me, they don't sow or reap or gather into barns. Yet your heavenly father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? 
can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? And the passage continues on and on and charges us not to worry about tomorrow, that God himself is in control of the future. And we have to be particularly careful about this kind of fear, the fear that produces distrust in the Lord and creates anxiety, worry, and panic within us because it's so socially and commonly acceptable. We talk about people being natural-born worriers, or we, talk, we say not everybody worries about something sometimes. We even go to the doctor to be treated with medication for that which is actually a heart issue. It's a fear issue. The heart of the matter is that we distrust the Lord and His goodness, and we desire to control that which is out of our control and ultimately in the Lord's hands. This kind of fear is a sinful fear. And there's one other kind of fear that is sinful fear, and it's fear that results from unsound thinking or judgment. The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and of sound judgment. Any fear that comes from a heart of unsound judgment is sinful. And we all know the kind of fear that I'm talking about. It's the kind of fear that begins with a hypothetical and then runs rampant and ends with this far-fetched, crazy scenario in our minds that has no basis in reality. When we allow our thoughts to get the best of us and drive us through fear in that way, it is indeed a sinful fear. And I would have you note, dear church, that none of these categories are exclusive, as if our fears fall into one or the other. Isaac falls into all four categories. He feared what man could do to him rather than fearing what uh, rather than fearing God, who has power over life and death, and how foolish that was for Isaac. It was just a few chapters ago that we read of Isaac laying on an altar with his hands bound, and his father with a dagger over his chest, ready to plunge it into him and sacrifice him to the Lord. And God provided, God showed power over life and death in that moment. And yet here, Isaac does not believe that God could deliver Isaac's fear also hindered him from fulfilling his God-given responsibility to tell the truth, to protect his wife, to trust the Lord, to be a blessing to the nations. He let his fear hinder him from what God had called him to do as a sojourner in this land. Isaac's fear was one that distrusted the Lord. He distrusted the very God who just a few short verses ago we read of his faithful covenant promises made to Isaac. I will be with you. You will have an offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky. You will dwell in the land. God had made all of these promises and yet he didn't believe that God could protect him when someone should mean him harm. And certainly Isaac's fear was not the result of sound judgment. After all, it's hard for me to believe that he hadn't heard that his father had tried this twice before and it didn't work out. Sound judgment would say, third time is not the charm. I'm not going to try this again. And after all, the likelihood of someone murdering him to take his wife seems astronomically low, even in these ancient times. This was not sound judgment that was driving Isaac, but an irrational, sinful fear. And so, dear church, we want to be mindful of our fear. But I would note that there is also good, appropriate fear. There's the fear that protects us from and promotes a healthy respect for a danger. If I fall from this ledge, I should perhaps die or have great bodily harm. That's a helpful, God-given fear of self-preservation. This is why you tell your kids, don't play in the road, don't touch the stove. There is a healthy fear for that which is dangerous. God has given us this kind of fear for our protection, but it is fear that is based in knowledge. This is not the kind of fear that Isaac had. This was an irrational fear that was a result of distrusting God. The God-given fear of self-preservation will never lead us to act in sin. That's one test that we can give for our fear. And then, of course, there's fear of God that leads to an awesome reverence for who He is. 
that causes us to revere his power and control, have all for his greatness and sovereignty, to recognize our lowliness before him and the judgment that we deserve, to be consciously aware of his fatherly discipline that will lead us to godliness. It's a fear that results in a zeal for his glory that rests in his goodness and loves him. It's a fear of the Lord that results in us trusting in him. But in this moment, Isaac does not fear the Lord. He fears other things. And so I ask you, dear church, do you struggle with fear in these ways? Do you struggle with the fear of man? Perhaps your fear leads you to distrust the Lord and to experience worry and anxiety and panic. Perhaps you have a fear that hinders you, prevents you from moving forward and performing your God-given responsibilities. Or perhaps your fear is just a result of unsound thinking, allowing your mind to run wild about hypothetical far-fetched scenarios. The challenge of this passage is to repent, to search your heart, to turn from your sinful fear, and to trust in the Lord, fearing Him above all else. You know, the psalmist says in Psalm 34, I sought the Lord and he answered me and rescued me from all my fears. If you find yourself this morning struggling with a kind of fear that even you didn't know was fear until this moment, seek the Lord, seek his help and he will answer you. He will deliver you from all your fears and he will do so. By giving you a stronger fear of him that is informed by knowledge of his character from his word. Another psalmist says in Psalm 56, when I am afraid, I will trust in you in God whose word I praise in God. I trust I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? The psalmist of Psalm 56 is telling us that the antidote to fear, anxiety, and worry, and all of those things is to know God more and to trust Him more. The antidote, the answer, the solution to our fear is fear of the Lord. And so we find from here in the life of Isaac, dear church, that God is indeed with us in our fears. And even when we fall into fear and act sinfully, God is nonetheless with us. God is with us in our times of fear. But there's a third and final thing that we want to see this morning. And it's that God is with us in times of conflict. You see, God's blessing of Isaac, in spite of his sin, actually resulted in another providential time of difficulty in his life. And it became a time of conflict for Isaac. Despite his sin, God prospers him. He, his crop brings forth a hundredfold at the supernatural blessing of God amidst this severe famine that is in the land. God is blessing Isaac and the people of Gerar are envious. They see what God is doing for him and so they begin to retaliate. The Philistines are envious and so they stop up the wells and Abimelech commands them to leave. And so Isaac begins traveling through the land, stopping at well after well that was dug by his father Abraham. He gives them the same names that his father Abraham had given them before. And the Philistines are following him. They are quarreling with him. They are demanding him that they leave his presence because of their envy over the blessings of God. At each well they quarrel. And yet, nonetheless, we want to note here that Isaac does not fight over these wells. He does not demand justice or possession over the wells. He seeks to live in peace with the men of the land, and he quietly moves on well to well, trusting for the Lord to provide. And there at the final well, Rehoboth, which means open spaces, something like that, he recognizes and proclaims that the Lord has provided a place, a space for him and his family. The Lord was with him through each moment of his conflict with the people of Gerar. We see this because God keeps providing for him. There's a famine in the land, and yet Isaac somehow was able to find water at each place that he goes. So he moves to Beersheba, and there he worships the Lord just as Abraham did. After his covenant with Abimelech, back in Genesis chapter 21, Abraham worships the Lord at Beersheba. He builds an altar there. He plants a tree, a tamarisk tree there, and he worships the everlasting 
God. And Isaac here does the same very thing as God appears to him in a vision. We have a reaffirmation of the promises of the presence of God. I am with you. Do not be afraid, he says. We have a reaffirmation of the blessings of Abraham for a land, a people, and the blessing for the nations. And Isaac here comes full circle to embrace the promises of God for himself. He builds an altar and he worships the Lord. Even in the midst of persecution and even in the midst of conflict, Isaac worships the Lord. And again, the Lord supernaturally works in the heart of Abimelech to bring peace to Isaac. Now Abimelech comes at the end of the chapter, I think primarily seeking gain for himself. After all, he's witnessed Isaac's harvest during famine. He's witnessed Isaac's constant discovery of water. And he confesses that God has been with Isaac, but only on the basis of the outward materialistic blessings that Abimelech is able to observe. God is working through Abimelech to bring peace to Isaac in the land. And so he makes a covenant with Abimelech in the same way, in the same place as his father Abraham. And he names it the same as his father Abraham did, Beersheba. This is the, the well of oath. Uh, they have dug a well there and they've made an oath, a covenant at this place. And then the chapter concludes with this really interesting conflict that actually has more to do with what comes next than it does before. There's this conflict between Isaac and Rebekah and the daughters of Esau, but nonetheless, God is giving peace to Isaac in the midst of his conflict. Through every conflict that Isaac experiences, God is with him. And so we want to think about this church and the application for us. And first, I want us to note that God's blessing is not just discerned through outward materialistic blessings. The things that happened for Isaac here in Genesis 26 happened to Isaac because God made a specific, unique covenant with Abraham and his offspring to have a natural people in a natural land under God's natural blessings. That's not the nature of the new covenant that you and I are under. Under the new covenant, the parallel is seen in our willingness to trust the Lord through our needs, through our fears, and through our conflict. The blessing, the hand of the Lord upon us is not necessarily seen in the possessions that we have, but in the graces that we demonstrate. It's in our peace of heart that we demonstrate come what may. It's in our holiness and our reverence for the Lord as the world outwardly looks on the way that we approach need and approach conflict and approach our fears. They are able to see the hand of the Lord upon us in a unique and special way. But I also want to challenge you, dear church, in your times of conflict to remember that God is with you. To challenge you to seek to live at peace with all men. To follow Isaac's example in this moment. But ultimately to know that God is with you in the midst of your conflicts. Isaac sought to live at peace with all men. And the Apostle Paul, of course, notes this in Romans chapter 12. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath, because it is written, Vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Dear church, there's often times in this fallen world that we experience conflict with others often unbelievers sometimes even believers we experience conflict and tensions and hard times with them Paul and Isaac both remind us to remember that the Lord is with us in that and that through God's presence with us we are able to seek peace with everyone as far as it depends on us let us live at peace with them and whether they forsake us or whether they abandon us, know that we have the Lord with us. And above that, we all know the natural, fleshly, sinful temptation to get even or to get back, to repay evil for evil. But the Lord calls us to peace. 
The Lord calls us to entrust them to Him. The Lord calls us to repay evil with kindness and grace. We must approach conflict in the way that Isaac approached his conflict with the people of Gerar. But even above and beyond that, we're called to worship the Lord in the midst of our conflict. We're called to praise Him, one, knowing that He has brought it into our lives for our good, knowing that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purposes. Even our darkest and difficultest of conflicts, God has brought it to us, and we praise Him and we worship Him for that. Oftentimes, we're tempted in the midst of struggle, in the midst of conflict, to believe that God has somehow abandoned us, that God has somehow forsaken us we feel like we're alone we feel like we're outcast and yet we remember that it was Isaac who was a sojourner in a land that he did not own but God was with him and so he establishes his altar and he worships the Lord this passage is a challenge to us dear church even in those difficult moments of conflict to worship the Lord for who he is and what he has done for us And this isn't just true of us personally. This is true of us as a church as well. We're promised throughout the church, uh, throughout the scriptures, that there will be persecution upon the church. There will be conflict that comes, oppression that comes upon the church. And yet the Apostle Paul reminds us, what is it? What can separate us from the love of Christ? He says, can affliction or distress Can persecution or famine? Can nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels or rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights or or depths, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The church can march forth and persevere in persecution and conflict because there is nothing that will separate the bride of Christ from her bridegroom. There's nothing that can pluck us from His hand. There's nothing that can strip us from His grasp. God is indeed with us in our times of conflict. God will be with us in our need. God will be with us in our fears. God will be with us in our conflicts, both individually and as a church, because of His covenant faithfulness in Christ Jesus. And it's in Christ Jesus that He is indeed with us. Is it not said of the Lord Jesus at His birth, after Mary conceives of the Holy Spirit, there's a child within her. Joseph is worried. He thinks he's going to divorce her. And an angel appears to Joseph in the night and says, call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. But then the Scripture goes on to say that what is is spoken by the Lord through a prophet has been fulfilled. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. God come in flesh to be with us. In Christ, the presence of God is with us. By Christ's Spirit, the presence of God is with us. And in Christ, dear church, we know that the glory of heaven will be that we will be with God for all eternity for those who are in Christ we truly know the presence of God in our needs in our fears and in our conflicts but if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ then you don't know the presence of God in your needs you're all alone you're left to your own devices to figure it out on your own in your fears you have no one to lean on particularly your fear of death. The Scripture says in Hebrews chapter 2 that we are, as human beings, enslaved to the fear of death. And dear friend, if you don't know Christ, you are left in that enslavement. Your fear is all your own. And in conflict, you are alone. Especially your conflict with God. The Scripture says that we are enemies of God. 
that we are at enmity with Him. We are at war with Him. We are in rebellion with Him. We are in conflict with God because we are alienated and separated from Him and in our needs and our fears. And in that conflict, we are separated from God. We are all alone. And if you turn not to Christ, you will be cast out into outer darkness to be left in your need, your fear, and your conflict for all eternity. Dear friend, you need Christ. It is only through God's covenant faithfulness that there is forgiveness and reconciliation back to Him. You may know God's peace and presence only through a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the call to you from this passage is to turn from your sin. And more than that, to turn from your self-reliance in your time of need and in your fears and in your times of conflict and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ who is Emmanuel, who is God with us, and through Him you will be saved. Well, what good news it is that because of God's covenant faithfulness in Christ, God is with us even in our times of difficulty. And may we reflect upon this passage as we go forth this week. That in our best of days, God is with us. But even in the darkest of valleys, even in the darkest of days, even in the hardest of needs, fears, or conflicts, God is indeed with us. And may everyone who knows the Lord Jesus here today, at the end of their life, be able to reflect back upon the goodness and the faithfulness of God that brought them through every need, conflict, and fear. And say with Isaac, and say with John Wesley, best of all, God is with us. Best of all, God is with us. Lord, we come to you this morning in awe of your graciousness to us. That we who are alienated, separated, rebellious against your will, you come down in flesh. The Creator took on that which is creaturely to save us to reconcile us, to be with us. And not just for those days, but for all time, through your Spirit, you are with those who are in Christ. Lord, remind us every day, in every need, in every trial, in every fear, in every conflict, God, you are with us. And Lord, we pray that you would, by your Spirit, be with the one who knows you not. That you would grant them new life. Grant them eyes of faith to see that Jesus is indeed God with us and that your peace and your presence is only experienced through personal relationship with him. In Jesus' name, amen.